Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through and including 23. And it's kind of called that which defiles. It begins as follows. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the the traditions of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions which, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't you disciples, your disciples, live according to the traditions of the elders instead of eating with their their food with hands defiled. <clears throat> he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, their teachings are merely human rules. You have to let go the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother and anyone who curses their father or mother is put to death. But you say that for if anyone declares that what might be have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God. But you no longer let them do anything for their father or their mother. Then you no longer let them do. Thus you nullify the words of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me everyone and understand this nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them rather it is what comes out of a person that defiles them after he had left the crowd and entered the house he his disciples asked him about parables are you so dull he asked don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them for it doesn't go into their hearts, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, What comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and define, defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. So a little bit of light reading today. We, uh, we've been in Mark for a while. And we're going to continue to be in Mark. And so to kind of catch us up to 
where we've been that sets up this story. Mark is very intentional in outlining his gospel as far as how he's trying to tell us who Jesus is. He is building his argument, and so he's been talking about Jesus' ministry with his disciples and the tension they've come up against with the leaders in Israel. And after this, we're going to see Jesus go, you know what? I'm going to start even reaching out past Israel. He's going to be interacting with Gentiles. He's going to be interacting past the borders of where he is supposed to be the Messiah of. So this is kind of the first turning point that we're really seeing. Jesus is breaking down the oral tradition of what Israel had thought was the way to do things. So that's kind of where we've been, and he's going to come up against the Pharisees one more time. Okay, so let's walk through it together. Um, I always find it really helpful, especially with large passages of Scripture, to break it down into sections, verses by verses. So if you want to take notes and follow along, that's great. If you want to just leave your Bible open and follow along, that's great. But that's what we're going to do. We're going to figure out what is actually going on here, because there's lots of stuff that pertains to the historical context and doesn't pertain to us necessarily, because we don't have the same traditions anymore. But we're going to use that as a way to see how is God speaking to us today. So let's start with verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now first, we got to recognize that these guys are not the local rabbis. Pretty much everywhere Jesus has gone, he's kind of gotten intentions with the local rabbis. At this point, he's gotten so much attention that they've actually sent an investigation team from Jerusalem to go, go up there and figure out what's going on. And so these guys have heard a lot coming in, and now the first thing they do when they see Jesus is they see his disciples breaking some rules. Now, the rules that they're breaking, we wouldn't really understand because it's not dirty hands that the Pharisees are talking about. They're seeing the disciples eat with hands that are defiled and therefore defiling the food. And, and Mark is actually writing to uh, believers in Rome. That's, how, that's what Mark's gospel is written to. And so his audience doesn't understand Jewish customs either. So he helps us out because he actually gives us a little bit of an explanation, starting in verse 3 that says, and he explains, the Pharisees and all Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing. What it was, just a little bit of water to kind of rinse off, and it's hearkening back from when Moses and the Israelites established kind of the way that priests were supposed to live, as far as before they eat the food that came from the offering that was their portion, they do a ceremonial washing in order to be holy before God, in order to come near to God. And so that has become part of a tradition that's now spread to all of Israel. So it's, it's a ceremonial thing, it's not a hygiene thing. Verse 4, when they come from the marketplace, you do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law ask Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? So what they're doing is they're trying to call out Jesus by getting on him for his followers. What kind of teacher are you that the guys that follow you are breaking all the rules. Now, something to understand about Pharisees first is, is where they're coming from, because they get a really bad rap. They're always the bad guys in the stories. Um, and when you're in Sunday school and have the flannel graphs, they're all standing there with their arms crossed, and Jesus is like smiling, has his hands open. Um, and so it's very easy to see those are the bad guys. But 
the Pharisees weren't this power-hungry group trying to rule Israel, like everyone thinks. They're a pretty small group of teachers of the law and of rabbis that were really just trying to uphold their vision of morality and their vision of obedience to the law and trying to make sure to impose that on Israel, say, hey, no, this is, this is how we're supposed to follow God. The tradition of the elders was that oral law that was expounding on and explaining the law that Moses had so that it could extend to all of Israel. Because if you look at just the Ten Commandments, when Moses came down off, off the mountain, it said things like, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And so they had to go, well, how do we keep the Sabbath holy? How do we know whether or not we're breaking the Sabbath? So they come up with rules about how many steps you're able to take, where you're able to go, whether or not you're able to sit in the shade or inside. The whole thing about honor your father and mother. Well, now there's laws about what that entails. And it's not as a way of trying to create extra laws for the sake of extra laws. They're trying to create an understanding, a framework, a structure for how to actually live out the law. And so for them, maintaining purity was really high on the agenda. The whole debate on washing hands had nothing to do with hygiene, but it was everything to do with piety, with being holy, with being pious. And so since Jesus was obviously an influential figure, they expected him and his followers to be set in an example. Say, hey, you guys got lots of people following you. You understand how we do things around here. What are you doing? You're not setting a good example. But Jesus was not really caring. He wasn't showing any thought towards the traditions of the elders. So to the Pharisees, not only was Jesus religiously incorrect, he was following God in an improper way. His boldness and his brashness of, of standing up to them, as it were, was a threat. It was a threat to their vision of how the community was supposed to be. They're like, no, no, no. We have these laws. We have these rules. We have this way for doing things. There is a place for everything. And everything has its place. And so we're going to have a smoothly running, holy community. And Jesus is standing up against that and saying, no, that's, I'm not going to follow your rules. Those are, the, those are the commands of men. And so not only is he a, a threat to their vision of what the community is, he's a threat to them because now their sphere of influence is being threatened because he's standing up to them and diminishing their authority. So they call him out. Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders? Or it could also be translated, why don't your, your disciples walk according to the, the traditions of the elders? And so I'll give you your Hebrew word for the day. Um, it's halacha. Um, so let's all say it together. Halacha. Yeah, get that phlegm going. Okay. Halacha means walk. And it's the idea of walking or living. And so it's the Pharisees' halachic way of understanding the law which really the image is there is a defined path of righteousness. So they're saying you're not living according to the halakhic understanding of the law. You're not living to the way that the right path of righteousness. Jesus, why don't your disciples walk according to the traditions of the elders? So the Pharisees, these traditions weren't not just, they weren't just routines. They were as important as the law. It was the oral law, but they were as important because they believed it came straight from Moses. According to the Pharisees' tradition, their understanding, when Moses came down off the mountain with the Ten Commandments, he gave the Ten Commandments to Aaron and the priests, and then he turned into Joshua and the elders said, and here's the oral law. And so for them, they, they figured, this comes straight from Moses. We are holding, upholding this and speaking this in the authority of Moses. And Jesus, he's like, that's not how it happened. 
And so he's teaching with his own authority that's blowing their authority out of the water. And that's why people are amazed at his teaching. Because he didn't hold that belief. And so he claimed that their traditions weren't the traditions of God, weren't the traditions of the elders of Moses. They're just the commands and the traditions of men. So up to this point, this isn't the first time Jesus has come up against the oral law. His, he and his disciples have been called out at least twice in the Gospel of Mark. Back in chapter 2, if we remember, first, um, we, we were talking about this over Thanksgiving week, the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus and said, why aren't your disciples fasting right now as a time of fasting? And Jesus said, because why would you fast when the bridegroom is at the wedding feast? And so he's telling them, it's not about the rule, it's about what's going on here. Right after that, they're walking through some fields, picking some grains of head, some heads of grain off of, off of the stalks and eating it. Happens to be the Sabbath. The Pharisees call him on it, and then a guy with a shriveled hand comes into the temple, and they're all looking like, is he going to do it? And then Jesus, of course, says, man wasn't created for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created for man. You're misunderstanding the rule. Heals the guy. He's trying to rebuff them by saying, you're twisting a little bit, and you don't, you don't get it. You're, you're misunderstanding a little bit. But at this point, right before this, Jesus has just fed thousands of people with very little food. He's walked on water. I'm sure that story's getting out a little bit. He's landed on the next shore and just unleashed a healing revival in the area. And then the Pharisees come, and all they care about is your disciples didn't rinse their hands before eating. So Jesus is probably getting a little impatient here. At least I would be. And you know, we, since scripture tells us that Jesus felt all the same things we do, I was getting a little mad when I was reading this, so I, I feel that he was getting a little ticked off. So verse 6, here we are. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules, the commands of men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. So Jesus had enough, right? They had, up to that point, refused to acknowledge what was really going on, the redemption, the grace that was being put forth in Jesus' ministry, and they're just focusing on the inconsequential things. So Jesus, at this point, he's like, you know what? I've tried helping you see it differently. I've tried helping you go, no, you're misunderstanding it. Okay, you just have it completely wrong. Not only am I going to give you a rebuttal to your accusation, I'm going to rip you a new one with your whole understanding of oral law. This is wrong. This is not from God. You're letting go of God's commands to hold on to this much lesser, much worse thing much smaller understanding of the law. So he starts off the scripture, quoting Isaiah, and he makes the Pharisees the focus of that prophecy. And, and I think it's, it's interesting. The word hypocrites stuck out to me, not because it's a new word, but because we all know the word really well, that being hypocritical is thrown around all the time, especially when you like to throw it at someone else and not at yourself. Um, <clears throat> but I was thinking about it, and Jesus never had to th think about changing the words he used. Right? Jesus was fully God and fully man. And so he's the one that showed up to show us what it means to be human. He's the smartest guy ever lived, the best speaker ever to live, the best teacher ever to live. And if you have a question against that, he spent three years with 12 guys who only knew how to fish, and 2,000 years later, the world's changed. 
That's the impact Jesus had. And so when he spoke, he knew exactly what he was saying. Even in using parables that people didn't always understand, he did it on purpose because he knew exactly what he was saying. So I don't think the word hypocrite was thrown back as a, oh yeah, you meanies. He's not just throwing it away. He's being very intentional with the word that he's using. And so he uses the word hypocrite, which comes from the Greek word that also describes an actor. Now, being a drama major, I take offense to that. But um, no, it means, it means playing a part. It means the outside is something, but the inside is something else. And so he says to the Pharisees, you are hypocrites. You look pious and holy and got it all together on the outside, but on the inside, you are dead to compassion, and you're concentrating on these little facets of the law and not understanding the God of love that created you has blessed you to be a blessing. You're not getting it. The oral law had been set up not out of malice. He wasn't calling them out saying, you guys are ruining everything. Yes, they're holding it too high. But the oral law had really come out of a place of trying to help ordinary Jews worship God. Because in the law that Moses gave, there's all kinds of cleaning and rituals and things like that for the priests so that when they entered the temple or entered the tabernacle at that time, they could be cleansed and could be holy and could be the way that they are able to draw near to God. And so the teachers of the law over the course of centuries and generations, started coming up with the oral law to understand, well, how do we make an ordinary guy do this too? How can you encounter God in your house with your family? How can you encounter God when you're giving a sacrifice? And so they came up with these traditions and routines that were really all about being passed down to help people worship God. But it had become such a big thing that it ended up being imposed on all of Israel as the right way to do it. So to the Pharisees, the ceremonial washing of hands was just a sign of piety that allowed the person to come close to God. This is the way we worship God. This is what you got to do. This is the way you have to do it. But Jesus disagrees. He says, that's, that's not it. Let's look at Isaiah. Isaiah says, these people honor me at their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. So he says that by focusing on these traditions that you think are drawing you close to God, your hearts have actually drifted away from God because you're just focusing on the rule. God doesn't care about the lip service or the human rules. And he ends it with verse 8 when he says, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. Now he means that because in verse 9 he says the exact same thing. And he continued, You've got a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Hear the irony there. Fine way. You, you guys do a really good job of messing everything up. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father and mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Now, to get what Jesus is talking about here, Jesus has just kind of rebuffed their first attack on him, quoted scripture, says, okay, now he's going to launch into a counterattack saying, let me give you an example to let you see how far you've gotten off the mark. And so he takes the example of 
dedicating something as Corbin. Now, Corbin was a vow. It was a vow of dedication. It was a way people would set aside property or resources for God. And it barred them from gaining profit from it. But the thing with Corbin is it only expressed the intention to give the property to God and didn't describe the when it would be given. So the vow had still been made, so the thing was still dedicated to God, but it might not actually be given to the temple yet. So the example that Jesus is citing here, he goes, well, what if that son doesn't like that one parent and says, oh yeah, no, I can't help you out in your old age. I know the law says honor my father and mother, and part of that involves taking care of them when they need to rely on me as I've grown and as they've grown. I know the law says that, but I've made a vow to God that puts this, it's dedicated. This is Corbin. I'm sorry. I, I would give this to you, but that would be sinning against God because I already dedicated this to him. And so Jesus says, you see how messed up that is? You see how, how that has twisted an understanding? Now the Pharisees would be like, but you can't sin against God. And Jesus says, any tradition you've come up with that violates the commands of God, the law, is null and void. Any vow you might make, whether it's spiteful or not, even if it's like, yes, God, I want to give this to you, and then all of a sudden your parents get sick and you really need to give them that cow. I'm sorry, it's, it's Corbin. No matter what vow that might be to God, it's immediately void and invalid if it goes against God's command to honor your parents. So according to Jesus, you can't elude God's commands with a shrewd legal loophole. You can't get around it. That's where it's showing there's problems. Let's move on to verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him. So at this point, he's responding to the Pharisees, and now he turns to the whole crowd. Okay, guys, let's get this out in the open. Here we go. Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. What's going on, Jesus? And I love this response. Are you so dull? Seriously, you still don't get it? That wasn't even a parable. Like, I didn't even use metaphors there. I literally said what's true. Stuff that goes inside you doesn't make you defiled. is what comes out. But give Jesus credit here. He still has patience and goes, yes, they're still so dull. Yes, I'll slow down and explain it to them so they can understand. So he continues. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, and again, the Jewish understanding of heart is your character, your identity, everything about you. It doesn't go into your heart when you eat something. It goes into your stomach and then it passes out. I'm going to skip over all the anatomy jokes there that Jesus is making here. But in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. So this is, again, Mark's little explanation going, see, this is going to come up later in church history. Jesus says, food can't defile you and separate you from God if it's dirty. It might make you sick but it doesn't separate you from worshiping God. Let's continue verse 20. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. 
All these evils come from inside and defile a person. So what's interesting here is that Jesus' list of these moral flaws that come from a twisted heart, they're all sins against people, not directly against God. These are the fruit of the bad tree that he's talking about. This is the stuff that defiles a person is when you're going against God's greatest command to love. But Jesus breaks down these general statements. He starts with saying, here's all the evil thoughts, big general thing, and then he lists out. It's a list of 12, it's two lists of six. The first six are actions, and the second six are characteristics. Okay? So the first six, sexual immorality, theft, murder. He starts with sexual immorality, fornication, the broad term, and then follows it up with also adultery, which is a little more narrow term saying breaking a marriage vow. But he's saying all that, that's stuff that obviously shows there's poison in your heart. Theft, which is connected to greed. Again, wanting to think coveting, things that, you know, which can also be related with the, the sexual impurity as well. Desiring the things that God has not given to you. Murder or malice. And, and malice, again, can be understood as wickedness, just disdain for people. Neglecting the command to love and instead going, nope, I care about something more than your life or more than your well-being. The second list of six are those characteristics. Now, the, the characteristics, they're, they're harder to detect. But honestly, they also probably hit a little closer to home, um, for me at least, because I, I can think of some time in my life where I've had at least one of these characteristics at any given moment. Because they're easier to hide from other people, so they're easier to let fester. And that's deceit or treachery. Lewdness, which can also be translated um, in one of the translations I read was licentiousness, which I didn't know what that word meant at first. It's like a 25-cent word. Um, but that, that can be understood as unwholesomeness, recklessness, open immorality as lewdness. Envy, which can also be translated as the evil eye, which was really just a Jewish turn of phrase that meant stinginess. So you can think of it as both envying what you don't have, like coveting, but also being stingy and not having open hands. Slander um, against people, but also against God, which is blasphemy. Arrogance, we get that one. Pride, insolence. And the thing that's interesting to me is what he ends with. He's got this list of huge evils that come out of someone's heart when they're not right with God. And he ends with folly. I don't know if that struck any of you guys. He ends with foolishness. And I was like, seriously? You're going to start with like sexual immorality and murder and ramp it up and go, and foolishness. But if you dig into what folly is, what foolishness is, it, it carries with it the connotation of small-mindedness but also being unwilling to open your mind. A small-mindedness combined with a heart like a clenched fist. Yep, I don't know and I don't want to know. And Jesus is saying, are you serious? Pharisees, you hypocrites, you can rinse your hands all you want. You can do any ceremony you want, but if you're not submitting your heart to God, look at the things that come out of your life. You think that's bringing you closer to the creator that gave you life? So that's the passage that we have. That's where Jesus is coming from and the context that he's speaking to. It's this 
community and this culture rich with history, rich with being the underdog, rich with trying to come up with ways to stand apart from everyone else around them to say, we're the set-aside people. This is how we follow God. And Jesus is saying, you're going through motions and your hearts aren't right. Now, I draw a lot of parallels to today. Because when I read the Bible, I mean, it's, it's a living and active word. And God is speaking to us today through words that are 2,000 years old. So what is he saying to us today? What is he showing to us? The two things that stuck out to me, um, the first one was being traditions. We have traditions in the church today. Not just in culture, but in the church specifically. But Jesus isn't speaking against traditions. So I don't want you guys to, to misunderstand that. Jesus is not saying traditions are bad. It's not a bad thing to set up a structure of how we live to help us keep following God. It's not a bad thing. Jesus knew, and Pastor Chris preached on this a couple weeks ago, Jesus knew that we needed wineskins to hold the wine, otherwise we've got a puddle of juice. You need a structure, you need a form to hold the understanding of the worship of God. What Jesus is preaching against is those old wineskins, the ones that are too rigid and too brittle to really be of any use anymore. And so for that, you got two options. You, you say, get rid of the old wineskins and just get new ones, or fix the old wineskins, rejuvenate them. And Pastor Chris was talking about our hearts being those wineskins that we can get so rigid and stuck in our ways that we're not open to the new word of grace that God's got or the new frontier he's calling us into. It's pushing us beyond our comfort zone, beyond our stretch zone. We're, we feel like we're going to break. But God is calling us to have hearts that are open and malleable and, and new and young and able to stretch and hold what God has given us. So Jesus isn't talking against tra traditions. He's talking about, uh, against traditions that have become evil or dangerous or corrupt. Now, traditions become evil when they run against God's purposes when they run against his purposes expressed in how to love people and how to relate to others. That's when a tradition becomes evil. Traditions become dangerous when persons are blind to how the tradition itself undermines God's command. That's when it's dangerous, when you don't even know how you're messing it up, and that's the Pharisees right there. Traditions become corrupt when people become more devoted to upholding them than obeying God's direct commands. So the question today is, what traditions are we putting above God's word? What are the things that we have gotten really used to and a little too firm on? Maybe it's, maybe it's tithing. And the questions are, well, do we tithe the gross amount? Do we tithe the net amount? Do we tithe out of the lemons of the backyard? Like, all these things are from God. Like, what do we tithe? But see, tithing isn't about the boundaries we put around it. It's, it's the opposite of trying to control. Tithing is about training our hearts and our minds to trust God with the finances that he's given us by giving it back to him first. It's not about an amount. It's not about a percentage. It's not about who they, how much they're doing and how much they're doing and how much you're doing. Those are outward things that we can get caught up in. But tithing 
is about showing that you're trusting God. And honestly, it's not showing God you're trusting him, it's showing yourself. For me, when I tithe, it's my reminder going, yeah, Drew, I trust God. And I go, yeah, I do. And I have a conversation in my head. And people look at me weird. <laughs> but it's showing that you're trusting God, that he'll make sure that you can still pay your bills and buy your food. It's training us to not be about gripping so tightly to the finances and resources that God's given us in the first place. It's not about the outward sign of piety. It's about the inner work in the heart. Maybe one of the traditions you get hung up on is baptism. Do we sprinkle? Do we dunk? How old do they have to be? Again, it isn't about the outward sign of what type of water we use or how many people are around. Is it just a family thing? Is it in front of the church? Is it at the beach? Those are the outward things. Those aren't the factors that, those aren't factors that make it stick. Those aren't the important things about baptism. The important thing about baptism is about the inner work in our hearts that the Holy Spirit does. It's about the work that he is doing when we approach the throne of grace. When we approach God with faith and he responds in baptism. That's the important part. Not about how we do it. Not about the words we say. Because then, if you're putting that above, you're thinking that we have power over how the Holy Spirit works. And I'll let you know, that's a really easy way for him to hitch in the back of the head, eventually, going, yeah, you thought you knew. Maybe the tradition that's become routine for us is, and it's the one that's maybe become to the point of being brittle, is communion. I'm, I'm intentionally calling out big things here. And I'm calling them out for myself too. So if you're feeling uncomfortable, if I'm pushing into raw areas for you, God's been pushing into my heart this whole week. So welcome to the club. <laughs> is it about wine? Is it about grape juice? What type of bread do we use? Do we stand? Do we kneel? Do we do table blessings? Is it rip and dip? If we're getting fixated on the method of how we approach God, we miss the fact that God approached us in the flesh and then willingly gave himself to be broken and beaten and displayed for everyone to see as our atonement. He gave his blood and he poured it out as an offering and he poured it out completely, keeping none for himself. But he gave it completely so that we could have a covenant relationship with the Father that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Where in your walk with Jesus have you allowed the method to overshadow the man that gave his life for you. The other thing that stuck out to me was the word hypocrite. So God was calling out the traditions that I might have in place that I've put too much importance on, but it's also the word hypocrite, and not in the way that you guys think, because I know that we can be really self-deprecatory and heap condemnation on ourselves and feel beat up in a sermon and then go, yeah, God is really doing a work, and then move on with our life. 
The reason hypocrites stuck out to me was because the Pharisees had no idea they were hypocrites. That was a revelation to them. They had gotten so fixated on the traditions and the method of approaching God that they'd fooled themselves into believing that those were actually the things that were important. To the point of not even recognizing Jesus for who he was and just seeing him as a threat to their way of life. Where in our lives are we being hypocritical even to the point of fooling ourselves? Where we think something we're doing is taking care of something with God and we're hiding that evil or that sin. And we're ignoring it because, well, at least I rinse my hands before I eat. That's what these things are. They're as ridiculous as that. But that was ingrained in the culture for us. What's ingrained in us to the point that we are ignoring something God is trying to point out to us because, no, no, we're good with God. Is it praying in a certain way? If you, maybe if you don't start the prayer a certain way or if, if you end it a certain way, if you don't do those things, well, it doesn't align your heart with God. It doesn't align your heart properly. So it started out as a good thing of, no, this is, this is how I'm going to align with God, but now you've made it about that. All others who don't have this brilliant insight of yours, well, they're just missing the mark. They're not praying right. And meanwhile, something's going on in your life that you're just keeping away from God. Is it the way, is it how you conduct yourself during worship? Oh man, I just get into singing those songs so much and I raise my hands and everyone around me is just dead and dull and disengaged from worship. Or I am just worshiping you, God, and I'm lifting my heart to you and I'm connecting with my Father and everyone around me is just flapping their arms around and going crazy and really distracting and disengaged from worship. those people over there. Maybe it's in the way that we dress and act. We like to put our best foot forward. And I have nothing wrong with dressing up for church. I even started wearing shoes. Um, It's cold. But if we're putting the importance on, well, we got to put our best foot forward and act like we have it all together. And even when we're outside of church and we're around other brothers and sisters in Christ and we're putting our best foot forward and keeping that that smile on our face. There's nothing wrong with dressing up, but if we're only showing the best parts of ourselves to those around us, it means we're hiding the dark parts of our lives. It means we're hiding the shame. We're hiding the impatience. We're hiding the neglect. We're hiding the sin. Now that is a lie from Satan that convinces us that we need to hide it. Oh, you can't tell them that. They'll look at you differently. Just put the tie on. Oh, you can't say that. They won't come over for dinner ever again. Church isn't for people who have it all together. I'm sorry, but Jesus went for the sick and the broken. And the fact that you're here this morning means you're broken. And so am I. But if all we do is pretend that we have it together and then cast judgment or, or act awkward or act impatient on the other people that aren't as good at, at faking it as we are, <laughs> then it's just driving away the broken people that really need to be here to encounter Jesus. And not just in this room, when 
our talk in here doesn't line up with our walk out there, how the heck do we expect Jesus to work through our lives to reach the lost world that we live in if we're not letting him reach in our hearts where we're lost? These are some of the ways that God's really been churning in my heart this week. And so as we continue this morning, and even in conversations after the service, I really invite you, have a real conversation with someone about what God's churning up in your heart. Because I have a feeling if he's churning up some, some muck, the person you're talk with have the same thing. And it's by the grace of God that he's bringing our community together through that. If he's calling out some hypocrisy in your life, there's not a person around here that doesn't have hypocrisy in their life. And if you're allowing the Holy Spirit to release grace through your testimony to them, going, man, I'm dealing with this, you wouldn't believe the fact that the Holy Spirit can work through your wrestling with that in their heart to break down their walls of going, yeah, I didn't want to talk about that, but wow, God told you to put you in this conversation right now to tell me he's saying that to me too. Where is God asking us to hand him our brittle and old wineskins of hearts? The ones that are stone and dried out so that he can replace them and renew them to be hearts of flesh. So we're going to pray and I invite you guys to press into what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. If the Kairos cards are a helpful tool for you, great. If you'd rather have the conversation in your head, great. But I invite you Talk with someone about it. What is God saying to you? How can we be building each other up in this community? Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word that even a section of your gospel that is about ancient traditions that we don't live by here in California, that you can still speak to us. God, we thank you that your word is living and active and pierces to our hearts. God, we pray that you help us not run away from where you're pressing in. That you help us not feel discouraged or condemned. But God, that we see your open arms saying, come to me, let me work in you. So Father, I pray that you just reveal to us the places in our hearts where you are trying to point to that you want to scoop out. Where you want to renew and replace with your love. Help us see the things that we have put too much emphasis on and therefore lost sight of you. And help us just again submit our hearts to you in all areas of life. Following you as our shepherd. Following you as our father and our king and our friend. God, we thank you for everything you've done in our lives. And we pray you continue to work powerfully in us and through us. In your holy and precious name, and all God's people said, amen.